First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. There's a lot in that hymn that's very instructive and helpful for us to keep in mind as we think of the life of the people of God together. That we're not just all kind of separate and you're a Christian, you in your small corner and I in mine, and kind of passing ships in the night. It's not meant to be like that, but it's meant to be intimate and real and true, and somewhat reflective of that which one day will be when we all gather in heaven itself. It's good to have Gregory with us again. He was here on Wednesday night, and those who weren't here, he has returned after his year away from us in the big smoke up in New York. Very glad that you're back, Gregory. Trust the Lord to help you as you settle in back into life in Greenville. We'll feel, the roads will feel very empty to you, I'm sure. First <laughs> uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll take time to read from verse 12, really where this section of thought begins as Paul leaves one thought and moves into others. So we'll read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. We've been looking through this epistle through the last year, and I trust, with the Lord's help, we'll bring it to a close today. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's still our hearts in prayer momentarily. Our God, we are here before thy word, the infallible word of the living God. We pray that as it has had a profound impact upon lives through generations, that that would be the experience of us here today. 
It is a living word. We pray we might feel and experience its living effect upon our souls. God, give help today. Make thy word have entrance into hearts and lives, saving the lost, strengthening the people of God, giving hope where there is faint hope, and causing us to just enjoy what thou hast laid up for us in Christ together. Give help then to this preacher. Give me the Holy Ghost. If we have that help of God, we have what we need. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. It is in Acts chapter 17, during Paul's second missionary journey, that we read of him entering into the city to which this epistle is addressed. He went there, as he did at other times, going into a place with the desire to bring the message of the gospel. And he had a certain pattern that he followed or sought to follow where he could, where upon entering a city he would seek to locate a synagogue, then in that synagogue to open up the Old Testament scriptures and to preach Christ to those that would hear. And of course it wasn't merely to preach the Messiah, it was then to direct them to understand that the one known as Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all the prophecies and is the one that God had promised, and the one to whom they must look to for salvation. That was his manner. And going into this city, Thessalonica, he found a synagogue there, and as his manner was, he began to teach the Scriptures and affirm the gospel of Christ. That's what he did. And God was pleased to bless it. He was pleased to save souls and gather them together as a church, as the called out ones, the synagogue, those that were there who had not the real root of the gospel within their hearts, they were not the truly called out ones, but God called on to Himself those that believed in the Son of God. So we read in Acts 17 verse 4, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude and of the chief woman, not a few. But things did not stay settled, as often was the case when Paul was there. (laughs) A riot would ensue. People would get upset. He would have that influence. Such was the power often upon his ministry that it was hard to ignore. Again, we'll maybe think about this a little tonight, but if, if you're in obscurity... It doesn't really matter what you're saying. People don't care too much. But whenever there is a sense where you're drawing attention and people are giving you an ear, when people don't like what you're saying, then it's not just that they don't like what you're saying, but it's the fact that many seem to be listening that they have a problem with you. So it was with Paul. And this city was a free city, a city that had its own sense of independence in spite of being part of the Roman Empire, and that was something that they wanted to protect, and they they kind of used that as the argument. Look, these men are unsettling things, and the argument is made in verse 7 of Acts 17, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And so they try to bring that aspect in to prevent Paul and Silas 
from having further influence upon the hearts of the people. And Paul ends up leaving hastily, but then later sends Timothy back to see how they're getting on. And upon Timothy's report, he pens this epistle, the first of the 14 writings of the Apostle Paul that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. And we have spent, as we said, the bulk of the past year in the Sunday mornings looking at this epistle, and we come to the end. As we approached the end of chapter 5 from verse 12 onwards, we dealt first of all with the subject that a gospel church is a church at peace, verses 12 through 15. We then considered that a gospel church is a church making progress, verses 16 through 24. And we come then to the end of the epistle that a gospel church is a church with purpose from verse 25 through to the end. And so the question then is asked, well, what is their purpose? You read from verse 25 onwards, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. What is the purpose? There's certainly here an emphasis upon brethren. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And by the emphasis of this word, we can see in the apostle's mind a pulling together of who they are in their identity. That this is a community. These are a people that are together. They are brothers. They are sisters. And they are pulled together in common fellowship through their union with Jesus Christ. And by constantly peppering these final verses with the word brethren, he is drawing that to their minds. He's helping them to remember they are a community. It is not you over there and me over here, and we don't really have much of an interest in one another. You are brethren. You're kin. You're pulled together by the magnetism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your interests are the same. I'm nearly tempted to go back and read over the hymn we just sang because it really highlights and, and pulls these thoughts together in a very helpful way. When God blessed the Apostle Peter particularly, though others were preaching, it appears, but on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 were converted, we are told in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And you pull all that together, you see there's intimacy, there's dependency, and there is instruction that is all communicated to each that are there. And while the following exhortations in what we're looking at this morning are not precisely the same, you will see on the whole that they're pulling the body of Christ together. And so Paul exhorts them as he closes his epistle in a number of ways. So let us consider then that a gospel church is a church with purpose, seeing first of all the need for intercession, the need for intercession. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. This is basically Paul's sole request made to the church in terms of himself. 
hasn't asked for money, hasn't asked for anything, but coming near to the very end of the epistle, he throws in there, look, would you pray for us? Would you remember me? Would you remember those that are with me? And if you step back and you just think about the individual making this request, it, it, it's, it's, it's a marvel. Here's a man of unusual, indeed extraordinary gift. A man of extreme intellect, of great knowledge and experience and influence. Even at this stage, still kind of in the middle of his ministry, of his life, even at this point, he, he had seen tremendous power. The Lord coming with him and working with him and, and miracles and uh, the evidence of his, of his preaching having a profound impact upon one community after another. And yet he is very conscious of his need of divine help. He was a man of prayer, of that there is no doubt. A man who prayed without ceasing. He begins many of his epistles reminding of the people that he remembers them, that he prays for them night and day, praying without ceasing and remembering their work and what they've done and so on and so forth. But, he's, but he has this, this air, this atmosphere of prayer that permeates all that he writes. He was a man who lived and breathed the atmosphere of heaven, constantly in communion with God. And even though he walked in these heights that very few, if any, others have experienced of the fallen sons of Adam. Yet still, he was dependent upon lesser individuals to remember him in the place of prayer. And that is very comforting. It is comforting because the greatness of this man was not merely what he was in and of himself, but what God made him to be. And he acknowledged that himself in his life, that it was by grace that he was what he was. That the Lord's hand had been upon him, and had the hand of God not been upon him, then he would not be anything that he became in the church and in the world. And so he asks, pray. Pray for us. Remember us those of us involved in the work of God. It's encouraging even to think that he has some sense of appreciation for the meager efforts of lesser Christians. Because he realizes that it's, that it's not all about them. But God has so ordered the life of the church and the forward progress of his work so that it hinges upon prayer, not just what is offered from the heart of the individual, but from what is offered by all that are involved in the kingdom of Christ. He sees that the, the drawing together of the people of God as they, as they seek the face of God for the same matters, the same concerns, the same burdens, that, that they bring the volume of their influence and the unity of their hearts together before God, and God hears their cry. We have this illustrated for us in the beginnings of the book of Exodus, when it is the, the concerted cry of the children of Israel, lifting up their hearts together to heaven, 
But God hears them and responds according to His covenant promises. And it's no different today. It is no different in Paul's day. It's no different now that, that the church of Jesus Christ requires, if it's ever going to make progress, it must, it must intercede before God together. And so it has this purpose, this purpose of praying. That if you have no other ministry, you have this ministry. If you're not involved in anything else, you must see yourself as involved in this. We are not all equal in any aspect of the work of God, but there are certain things that God calls us all to be involved with and in, and this is one of them. Prayer. Brethren, pray for us. Now, he doesn't tell them how to pray as he does elsewhere. And in one sense, perhaps you might think it's obvious what to pray for. But, but maybe he learned, I don't know, but maybe he learned from his first epistle that he needs to be more specific in giving exactly how to pray because in other epistles he explains. Let's turn for a moment to see some of them. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Verse 30. Romans 15, verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. So there's a number of requests here. And he specifies, would you pray in this way? But in general, of course, it's, it's for the forward progress of the work that he's involved with. He wants the help of God to be in the things he intends to do. That he may be prevented from being hindered by the enemies, and that his service toward the saints in Jerusalem may be accepted, and then by and by he may get to Rome and enjoy the opportunity to be there. Ephesians chapter 6 is another record of a prayer where Paul gives specifics in how to pray for him. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. As you pray, as you watch, as you wait before God in your prayers, remember to pray for me. And he clarifies, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I don't depend upon my own resolve to be as bold as I need to be 
I'm not thinking that because I've been consistent up to now that I will be consistent in the future in my responsibility. I need prayer, beloved. Pray for me. And then finally, Colossians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer, watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us. Pray for us. Then clarifies that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul needs prayer. He needs support. And those that are with him, they need prayer. And so, this is a responsibility for all the people of God. It is to take upon their hearts the need to pray, and especially in relation to those that are involved in some area of ministry. They're the ones that stand in front of people, Individuals come to the fore, the the preacher, the minister, the missionaries that are involved in various aspects of the work of God, maybe evangelists and those involved in forms of outreach. And there they are at the forefront and they're busy and they're involved, but they depend upon, they require, heaven would demand of us that we pray for them. That as we pray, as we seek the Lord, that we remember those that are involved in aspects of the work of God, and we bring them before God. It may seem so little, it may seem so insignificant. A little prayer every now and again as you, as you wait before God, as you, as you pray each day or whatever, you just add in, Lord, bless the preachers, bless this minister, bless this missionary. It may not seem like much asking, Lord, provide, give them power, give them help. And, 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 that, and that really doesn't seem like much, and yet it is so crucial. Paul saw it as utterly essential. Brethren, pray for us. And he leaves it here to the end, as often he did, perhaps again not to distract from the main bulk of what he's trying to teach, but also because some of the things that stick more in our minds are the final things that we read. So if if you're ever writing anything, I do this on email, if there's something in an email I want someone particularly not to miss, I don't, at times anyway, I don't include it in the body of the email, I put it in a PS, because I know that will be read more carefully than the actual body of the email. It's just human nature. And, and so you, this, Paul, in one sense, he leads us to the end. He's, I don't want you to forget this. I have just one request. He pulls it in at the end. Brethren, would you pray for us? Would you remember us before God? Of course, this is to be done in private, but it's also to be done in public. When you read through the book of Acts, and if you were to look for where do, where is this exemplified in the book of Acts, where people prayed for those in ministry? I was thinking about this just this morning, thinking, where where is it exemplified in Acts? And I thought, well, immediately Acts chapter 4, that's one place where they're being threatened, don't, you know, stop preaching, don't preach anymore in this name. 
And they come together to pray that they will continue with boldness to do the very thing that they're being told not to do, to continue to preach the gospel, that they may be bold in the declaration of truth. And then also I thought of Acts chapter 12. And again, you have this, this, this leader in this time, you know, you think of the context of, of Romans 15 verse 30, where, where Paul is, is saying, pray for this in relation to those that were opposing him. Remember that, please pray in relation to the enemies that are trying to stop me. Well, you could, you could put that right there in Acts 12, where the enemies of the gospel are trying to stop the forward movement of the gospel by putting in prison the leaders and the preachers of the word. And Herod has already killed off James. He has now put in prison Peter. And everyone is convinced that this is what is going to be the end of Peter. He's also going to be martyred. But they come and they pray. They pray against the enemies of the gospel. They pray for the freedom of the preacher. And even though it seems no one believes it will actually happen, they pray anyway. Again, how encouraging is that? That there they are, praying for something no one believes is going to happen. And there's almost an element of humor as Luke records Acts chapter 12, as as he pulls it all together. But but, but so often that's us. I mean, we, we, we pray for things. But I was so encouraged by this recently, thinking of, in another context, something where it seems this is impossible. I can't see how it will happen. And yet I'm going to pray that this will occur even though I don't see how. I'm going to pray for it anyway because God is gracious enough to hear the prayers even when His people don't always believe that it will come to pass as they're praying for. That's what Acts 12 teaches me. And you have then this man about to be stopped and they're praying. But here's my point. In both of those examples, Acts 4, Acts 12, they are not individuals praying. They're not praying at home. Now, there are parts of the book of Acts that deal with individuals praying alone. We have uh, Saul of Tarsus just after his conversion. I think of Peter also before he goes to Cornelius' home. You have examples of men praying alone. But, but in these cases, when they're praying for the forward movement of the work and the ministers of the gospel in this context, they are praying corporately. And so our corporate prayers should include, must include, when we come together, praying for those involved in forms of ministry and outreach and the preaching of the gospel. And so you would say then, the assumption is, putting into verse 25, understanding verse 25, Paul's not just saying, look, go home and pray for us. Yes, do that. But when you come together, pray for us. Make sure you pray for us when you meet for prayer. The need for intercession. This is part of the purpose of the church. To pray. Pray for the ministers of the gospel, the missionaries of the cross, and the other forms of outreach that may flow out of any given congregation. And even praying generally for the witness of every Christian that it would be effective wherever they are. Let's pray for ourselves, beloved. Let's pray for each other. Secondly, the need for interaction. The need for interaction. Not just intercession, but interaction. Verse 26 Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. Several times Paul gives this exhortation. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, and here. And when I come to verses like this, when I read them, I'm not sure I 
feel as some others might feel when they read them. Sometimes I wonder, what would it be like to read these verses as someone who has never been in a culture where they do this? They actually do greet one another in a form of a kiss. I think it must be a very strange thing to read. And I imagine if someone was to get up and assert that this is what the church must do in this form, that a whole lot of people would get very uncomfortable very quickly. (laughs) I can only imagine. But I have a little experience with this. Well, more than a little. Because my whole father's side of the family, the Armenian side of the family, to this day it is their culture when you greet, you greet with a kiss. Usually two, one on each side of the cheek. And that's what they do. And I grew up, every time I would visit or Armenian side of the family, my father's side of the family would come to visit. This, this is how you say hello. This is how you greet. Whether it's your grandparents, your cousins, friends, if they're, if they're Armenian, this, this is what you do. And poor Melanie was thrown into the middle of this when for the first time she, was, she found herself among some of the Armenian members of the family. And they're all greeting and all these strangers, people she's never met before at very close proximity. But it is is part of the culture. It's it's just part of what they do. And you'd be a very odd individual. It would be a matter of insult not to conform to the custom. So it is something I'm familiar with. And in the culture of the Bible, from what I have read, mostly it would be only men who would greet one another like this and women that would greet each other like this. You wouldn't have the opposite sex doing this uh, with, if they were strangers to each other. Um, that wouldn't be the norm. But there would be this greeting in this fashion, a greeting of a kiss. You can think of various portions of Scripture perhaps in your mind where we have examples of this. And so we read this and we wonder, well, is this what God is demanding? Is God demanding that we hear with our Western sensibilities and our certain cultural forms, is God requiring that there is an adjustment in our form of greeting? Well, maybe. It depends. The purpose of the greeting is to reflect, as I meditated on this, two things. Unity and affection. The unity that exists by reason of who they all are in Christ and the affection that is felt. The form of greeting is urged upon believers to reflect what is true doctrinally. We're all one in Christ. And practically, you should love one another. This then is reflected by this kind of a greeting, this interaction. Greet all the brethren, all the brethren. Why? Why is it so important? Because you're all one in Christ. You greet all the brethren. You don't ignore brethren. You don't act like they don't exist. You don't cut them off because what you are in Christ should be reflected And then the affection as well. That we are commanded by Jesus Christ to love. And that's reflected in the holy kiss. 
The question then is, should we make it a kiss? Is God requiring us to alter our interactions with each other and begin to practice this in some form? Well, I don't think so. As long as our interaction, as long as our greetings reflect what is really the important thing, the unity and the affection, then I think whatever the culture has or whatever form it might be, as long as you're reflecting that, then I find it acceptable and I think it okay. You could take this form of greeting and be guilty exactly with, of what Judas was guilty of. He betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. And so the form of it isn't so much what matters. It is what is truly being reflected, what is real within the heart that I see myself as one with this brother, with this sister, and I genuinely love them. We are one in Christ, and I love them. And however I reflect that, however the culture may mandate or whatever the community is comfortable with, I don't see it as being a problem. And so what we do, what our common mode is, that of a handshake. We shake hands. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's a right way to greet. In fact, I think it's very important for us. And that's why I say it depends. The form of our greeting may change, may have to change, depending on how we view the importance and the significance of our greeting one another, which in our form is with a handshake. Do you see the significance of shaking one another's hands? Do you understand how important it is to make a point to give God's people a solid, warm handshake with a smile as a form of obedience to God? If you do that, then I think you're fulfilling this exhortation. I think we're doing it. I think it's important for us to understand how significant it is. I preached in a church one time, and I'd never been there before. And it was a different denomination, a different church. And when I, before I went out to preach, before the service began, I was in this back room, and all the elders were there, and maybe the deacons as well. I can't remember. There was quite a number of them anyway. 15 to 20 or so, and they were all standing in a circle, and their way was that you sh- the preacher would shake the hand of all of them, and that those individuals would say something like, God bless you, or blessings upon you, as you would go around. It was just a thing that they did, a habit they did, but it, but it signified a sense of unity, of support, and of the desire of the leadership of the church for the blessing of God upon what you were about to do, as you would get up to handle the word. There are different ways in which we may reflect this, but the, but the point is this, that, it is, that there, has, there has to be interaction with the people of God. We can't ignore one another. Greet all the brethren. That doesn't mean to say that if you kind of walk out of a room and come back five minutes later, you have to go through the whole thing again. But, but generally, there's been a kind of, there's, there's a separation for a time. 
Some of us don't see one another from one week to the next. Is that long enough for us to make a point of greeting one another? I say yes. In fact, one of the biggest, not biggest, that's exaggerating, a little minor frustration of mine (laughs) coming here was for the first time really being in a place where there's like, you know, five different exits out of this church. And, you know, you, you normally are, most churches are arranged in such a way you stand at a door and that's kind of the, everyone has to kind of funnel out that door. But here there's like all these different doors and side doors and so on. And you're like, you only see maybe, you know, 30%, 40% of the congregation on any given Sunday. Some, you know, they kind of maybe think to their mind, well, I haven't shook the hand of the minister in a few weeks. They make a point of coming around. But some of you, you pass through the doors and I, I don't see you from one Lord's Day to the next. And maybe I need to, you know, stand at other doors and so on. But it was the first time I ever was like, oh, it's kind of annoying. You know, I'm kind of used to everybody kind of funneling past me and seeing everyone who was there, basically, in the congregation that day. Because I like, I like to, you know, get close to God's people and to shake their hands and, and see how they are. And, and especially sometimes if someone's there that is lost, to have them stand, it's a, it's a thing indeed, for someone to have heard the word and then stand within close proximity to the one who's just delivered the message and you can see how they pass when they won't make eye contact or they, they just by their body language and they have to pass you by knowing that they're walking out still rejecting the gospel. So we are exhorted, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. There should be an emphasis upon this. There should be an effort to do this. And I therefore exhort you, beloved, as Paul does, make a point. Make it a point, part of your ministry, a part of your worship, that prior to the service and after the service, you actually say hello to people. You greet them with a warm handshake and a smile and whatever may follow. This, this is biblical. It's not just pleasantries. It is Christian living, fundamental Christian living. When we all kind of like just make a beeline to the door and run out the door, there's something I've been in churches like that, churches where it has been encouraged. You know, the emphasis is so much upon the Word to the point that, you know, don't talk to anyone unless you might forget something that you've heard and you, don't, you kind of lose your train of thought and meditation on the Word. And so they all just file out, boom, don't, don't breathe a word to each other. And it just it seems a little odd. We, we, are, we, are, we are together. We're a family. It's weird when a family come together and no one speaks. You know, we, we are part. This is, it's the emphasis, isn't it? Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. This is the emphasis. We're a family. We communicate. We say hello. We greet. We ask. We inquire. This is part of our purpose. Have you ever been helped simply because someone came over to you one day and just said hello? How are things? Did it ever make a difference for someone to just take a moment to come over and say, hello, good to see you? It's a form of ministry. It's part of a healthy body. It is what we're exhorted to do. 
And I encourage you, beloved, to put it into practice. There are Sundays we're in hurry. We have to go. That happens. But let it be more of the exception than the rule. See it as part of your Lord's Day worship. To interact with the Lord's people. Thirdly, the need for instruction. The need then for instruction. We've seen the need for intercession, the need for interaction, the need for instruction. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Paul directs the congregation, perhaps most significantly the leadership of the congregation, to ensure that this letter is read to everyone, that everyone hears this instruction. It's for all the holy brethren. And in the most narrow sense, then, this epistle would have been taken and read to the congregation, and that they would ensure everyone heard it, heard it and understood what was being said. And so it may, of course, be the reading of it, but it has application even in the understanding of it. You know, like Ezra, you give the sense, you expound, form of preaching, explaining the word, certainly that would be included. And you may ask, well, why was this vital? Why does he say, I charge you? Paul is, is calling heaven to witness here that before God, I charge you by the Lord that you do this. I'm calling you I adjure you by the Lord, read this to the church. Why was it so important? Why use such strong language? Why come down so heavily in relation to this? Why was it so vital? Much could be said, but in summary, because this is Scripture. In Psalm 37 Verse 31, we read, The law of his God is in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. And this is what Paul's doing. He's getting the word into the heart. He is, he is, he's giving something that can be imbibed by God's people and will help them so that they don't slide, so that they don't uh, sin, so keeping them from sin, helping them in their thoughts and in their actions before God. It is utterly crucial that, that God's people know God's mind. And as we, we read this, then we might wonder, well, how, how do you know that this epistle is Scripture? Turn for a minute to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Because if you imagine just for a moment, uh, Paul would have written this as a letter. It would have been received as a letter but it would have been new to that congregation. And why should they have received it as Scripture? Well, because it was obvious. What Peter writes here was obvious to everyone. Aside from arguing from apostolic authority and so on, it was patently obvious. Second Peter chapter 3. And we read from verse 15. In the middle of the verse, he says, Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. When Peter writes, it's all, it's, 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 he's not even really making a point so much as it's just by implication an obvious understanding that what Paul was writing was Scripture just as the other Scripture was being twisted by the enemies of the Gospel, so they were twisting his words as well. But his words, the point is, his words were Scripture. What he put down and wrote to the church was Scripture. And so when he adjures the church to ensure that this epistle is read, he is commanding with divine authority that the Word of God is heard by men. There is nothing more important than this. God has chosen the written Word as His way of communicating eternal truth. Personal experiences, no matter how profound, only become eternal truth when they are found in Holy Scripture. Your personal experiences hardly matter a jot in comparison to the Word. And should you ever be in the position where something you've felt or experienced or you feel in some strange way, and you think, well, I think it's this, but Scripture clearly contradicts it, you go with Scripture, always. Your heart is deceitful, your feelings are not reliable, you're easily deceived, just like is the manner of men. And the only reliable thing, when God was giving His, His law, His eternal law, His moral law, He inscribed it Himself in tablets of stone. He didn't just speak it. He inscribes it, the written word. And so, he, even in that practice, he is, he is giving us understanding that this is the primary mode of communication. It is in written truth that we understand the mind of God. The Reformers understood this. This was what made the difference. They got back to the Word whether it was Tyndale or some of the other reformers, it was a, it was a, it was a grasping, this is what the people need. They need the Word. They are in darkness because of the lack of Scripture. They don't know God's Word. They must have the Word. And it was by that, it was by the the, the, the printing and the spreading of the Scripture, the greatest, I believe the greatest significance, are, are, aside from all the political change and, and uh, academic changes and, and so on that were going on in the world at that time, the most critical change in the experience of men and women living at that time was access to the Word of God. Transformed nations. John Knox said in a letter to other brethren in the ministry in Scotland, 
try to follow his line of thought here because he's, he's, just, he's, he's driving home this point. The Word is what is needed. For as the Word of God is the beginning of spiritual life, without which all flesh is dead in God's presence. And as it is the lantern to our feet, without the brightness whereof all the posterity of Adam does walk in darkness, and as it is the foundation of faith, without which no man understands the good will of God, so it is also the only organ and instrument which God uses to strengthen the weak, to comfort the afflicted, to reduce to mercy by repentance such as have slidden, and finally to preserve and keep the very life of the soul in all assaults and temptations. And therefore, if you desire your knowledge to be increased, your faith to be confirmed, your conscience to be quieted and comforted, or finally, your soul to be preserved in life, let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God. Your exercise be frequent. Like faith and prayer, read more Scripture. Struggling with what's going on in your life, read more Scripture. Wondering how you're to deal with the problems what God would have you to do in some decision you have to make, read more Scripture. Go back to Scripture, beloved. Keep reading Scripture. You're not going to find some mysterious, life-transforming quotation in some inspiring Instagram feed or whatever else through the internet. All your answers and all your need and all your requirements are found in the Word. And I could just as well, like Paul, adjure you by the Lord that you read the Word. Are you reading the Word? Are you in the Word? Well, how dangerous it is when Christians begin to change direction and go here and think that and do the other and they're all over the place and they're not reading the Word. They're as unstable as water. You can just move them around. One idea, another notion. The devil can have a field day. Hath God said? And you're open to anything. And so you come back, beloved, get back into the Word. If the one thing you do, even in order to fulfill the exhortation last Lord's Day morning, to delight yourself in God, the organ, the instrument, the need of your soul to delight in God is to bathe yourself in the Word. Let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God. And then Paul closes with a benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The benediction, the blessing of God's grace continuing amongst you. God pardoning your sins, comforting your hearts, leading you in your lives, 
helping you through your responsibilities. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These are some of the purposes of a gospel church. Intercession, interaction, and instruction. This is what we're called to do. Are we doing it here? Well, certainly in a measure. But as it was there, there's always room for improvement. So it is with us. And the devil is always working against us. Oh, how he would stop us fulfilling our purpose, wouldn't he? Take each of them. Does the devil try to stop us from interceding? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's always trying to stop us from praying. Acts 16 comes to mind. There they are going to pray, Paul and those that were with him, heading to pray. And this young damsel comes and keeps saying things. Every time they're going to the place of prayer, she comes out crying against them. And these are the servants of the Most High God and so on and so forth. But it was always at the point they're going to pray. Distraction from the goal, from the purpose for, for what they're gathering together to do. Stopping them from prayer. I mean, we've all had it. We've all, you get down to pray. I mean, the phone hasn't rang all day. You get down to pray, the phone rings. Something else that hasn't occurred all day, you get down to pray, the door knocks. I mean, it happens so frequently. There's something going on. There's some powers that are unseen by the physical eye. Forces that work to prevent the people of God from praying. Nothing happens on Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. But all of a sudden, Wednesday night, something crops up. Stops you from getting to the place of prayer. So he works. Does he work to prevent our interaction? Absolutely. Divide and conquer. That's his way. Divide and conquer. Come and just put something in there. Just throw in a little thought there that makes it difficult to greet that brother to shake his hand and warmly welcome him, something that just comes into the mind that makes it difficult to interact with a feeling of affection and unity. (sighs) Be not ignorant of his devices. Does he come and try to stop the instruction of the people of God? Sure. Prevent you from reading the Word. Prevent you from hearing the Word. Trying to stop you profiting from the Word. The fowls of the air that come to steal away the seed of the Word. All of these things are going on all of the time. So how much we need the Lord's help to fulfill our purpose as a gospel church. Praying, interacting, receiving instruction and giving it. Oh, may the Lord help us. May the Lord be pleased to give us much grace. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we confess before Thee that we are in need of help in these days. Thy people always need Thy help, but we selfishly cry to Thee and tell Thee of our need of help. Lord, pity us. As Thy people, we need strengthened. We need help help to intercede, help to interact, help 
and the instruction we receive. We need help, Lord. We pray that Thou wilt help us. Lead us as a congregation into that sweet fellowship and enjoyment of all the blessings laid up for us in Christ. Open up the storehouse of heaven that the greater than Joseph may provide abundantly all of our needs. Come mercifully to every family and cause us, Lord, to enjoy our God this day and every day. May our hearts be filled with hope. May our prayers be filled with, with a sense of expectation. And may we see our God working in our day to the amazement of our own souls. Oh God, bring us to days where even the ungodly have to say, the Lord hath done great things for them. And we will say, the Lord hath done great things for us. Oh God, please, come mercifully. Come and help us in all these areas and in every other weakness that we have. We thank Thee for this epistle. We thank Thee for all that we have learned and all that has been of help to us through the months that we've considered the lines of this letter. We pray, bring it to our memory. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against Thee. Write Thy Word upon us in the fleshy tables of our hearts and enable us not only to hear the Word, but to do it. We thank Thee for such a church like this that was an example in so many ways, especially by their evangelistic zeal and how many were aware of the gospel through their efforts. Father in heaven, that has been the case in bygone days from this church. We pray that it might multiply in our present day and in future days. Bless therefore all the ministries presently going on and everything that may be done and added to in the future. Lord, give us the help. Grant us aid from heaven. Do good to Zion. Cause our hearts to be lifted up knowing divine favor upon us in these days, may we see the Lord work graciously and wonderfully in our personal lives and in the life of the church and beyond. So hear our prayers. Be with us in our time together as we fellowship before we part. Make it a sweet time and go with us to our homes and bring us back here again tonight expecting thy blessing. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.